This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, debt and bankruptcy. As a nation, as states, as counties, as cities, as individuals, how do we get here? How do we get to where two-thirds of the American population are deep in debt? There's no way they're going to get out of it, and there's no help for them. On the other end, you have about a third of the American population that's well-to-do, Many are millionaires. And how did that happen? That we got so many millionaires, and during the last four years, they've gotten even wealthier. And the billionaires, much wealthier. I intend to go through this in some detail. First, I'm going to give you just statistics so you see how serious it is. And then I'm going to go through some personal examples using myself, information I've never shared with you because I never saw the need to. But if some of my examples of what I was able to do in life to help myself prevent from going broke or prevent from having uh, nothing of value to having at least financial stability, maybe those can help you as well. So it'll be partly motivational based on my own personal life experience and looking at the society around. So hopefully you'll find this of use. First, we're told by all the major media, we're doing very well. We're thriving. Well, we're not. One group is, but the other group is not. It's amazing when we try to show who's right in a war. There's always a black and white. The devil's on one side and the angels are on the other. And we're always with the angels. We never cause a war. We never cause suffering. We never hurt individual civilians. Never. Not in any of our wars, not in any of our regime changes, because no one's ever said, boy, did we screw up for political and economic reasons, for geopolitical reasons, for ideological reasons, power, hegemony reasons. We decided to destroy a completely functioning country like Libya or Syria or other countries. And here's who's responsible. Here's who agreed to it, and here's who's going to be fired and actually should be charged with crimes against humanity. That's never happened. Not once. Now, people who were part of that, who leave the government, then come back and criticize it, yeah, they'll tell you that. But when's the last time a president of the United States, a secretary of state, head of defense department, and the joint chief of staff ever acknowledged culpability? I mean, my goodness, in our own lifetimes, Thousands upon tens of thousands of African-Americans were adversely affected by a small group of African-Americans who had syphilis and could have easily been treated and cured. But the CDC and people involved in the decision-making process to this day, we've never been told who, said, let's use these African-Americans as experimental animals. Let's see what, let's see what happens when we don't treat them. And even a hug or a kiss, let alone intimacy, can cause the spread of syphilis. Now just imagine over 40 years, how many people impacted, infected other people, infected other people until it got to where it was congenital syphilis. 
People were born with it. And then finally it was exposed. A human experiment that the United States government through the CDC did on its own people. And we said never again. And about 20 years later, Bill Clinton had to give some little apology. But then we did it again. And again and again and again. Turns out when we found out all these documents coming out of Freedom of Information Act, the government never stopped using American citizens as guinea pigs and uh, prisoners, soldiers. So when it comes to people telling you the truth, and that's my larger overarching point, please understand, is that person biased? Will they be adversely affected in their career or legally if they tell us the truth? And lo and behold, once in a while, not often, a whistleblower comes forward and says, you know something, you were lied to, you were used. And then they tell us inside their experience how we were lied to or used. And then there's a little bit of flurry in the news media. But if it's something that those in power have done, the mainstream media covers it up. They'll never touch it. It's a non-story. And then we find out from scholars 20, 30, 40, 50 years later about an Operation Condale probe, how the FBI tried to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide by trying to blackmail him about all the women he was having affairs with around the country. Well, it didn't work, thank goodness, but they tried. In fact, the government's been trying to control our behavior for decades. So one day you wake up and you say, oh, we need to be in Ukraine. No, we don't. We need to support the Israeli government. Well, what about supporting both sides of seeking peace where both end up benefiting and stopping carnage? No, we never do that. But at the end, there is always some kind of truce, some kind of treaty to end conflicts, World War I, World War II, the Civil War, American Revolution. And then people look back and say, what was that really about? Did we need to do that? And almost always the answer is, with some exception, no, we didn't. And, let, and yet the people responsible are never held accountable. I give you that as background because how you do one thing in life is almost always how you do everything in life. We're not two different people. We're not Jekyll and Hyde. We're good and we're bad. We're happy and sad. We're constructive and destructive. We're kind and violent. No, we're only one person who makes bad choices when we do bad things and good choices when we do good. Now, we can blame epigenetic conditioning, or we can blame culture, we can blame ethnicity, we can blame religion. But at the end of the day, for adults, the choices you make will have an outcome, constructive or destructive, on a scale. And so when you take a look at what we're doing now, then you'll see how that works. How did this all happen that we got so terribly in debt? It's relatively simple. From the 1941, when we got into World War II, until about 1975, we had a thriving economy. It was a war economy. And that war economy actually went over to Italy and Germany and uh, to Japan and rebuilt their economies. They were our enemy. 
They did atrocious things, genocide. And yet, we forgave them, did not forget, and we rebuilt their economies, which also helped us because we were controlling it. So our gross domestic product, meaning the total amount of income coming in, soared. But also, we needed people to fill these jobs. In fact, there were three jobs for every person available when I was growing up. And we were given a standard of living. People, because of unions, which represent about 51% of workers in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, with collective bargaining and proper ways of not overworking, uh, being paid for overtime, uh, having uh, attorney leaves and other things. And then the environment came in and says, you've got to create a healthy working environment. And so OSHA, another, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, saw that the workplaces weren't the kind of workplaces people had to face with black lung disease in the mines and brown lung from the dust from the cotton in the mills in the South making clothes, or back in the uh, 1800s where child labor was working all day in one of uh, the robber barons, uh, like Carnegie's steel mills, where your life expectancy was very short. So we made major improvements in sanitation, hygiene, nutrition, and uh, standard of living, which allowed the average person to have a nice quality of life. Now, something happened that changed everything. Today, we have a lot of people who once were gainfully employed, had little or no debt, had quality of life where only one of the parents had to go to work. The other could take home, uh, take care of the home, raise the children, create the social bonds with their community and church or religious institutions, and uh, help the child do their homework see that there were guidelines, there were moral guidelines, there were behavioral guidelines, there were etiquette and ethic guidelines, there was respect guidelines. For example, I went to the largest high school in West Virginia, Parkersburg High School. Had about 3,500 students uh, from ninth grade to 12th grade. There was never a suicide, not one. And then I asked my mother and father, my older brother was five years older, none. No teacher had ever been assaulted in the history of the school, ever. In fact, nobody could remember a teacher being cursed at or threatened, ever. Because there was a consequence, not just with the principal and your reputation, but when you got home, there'd be consequences. Because part of the growing up was, remember, you're a member of this family. So what you do represents us collectively. And people knew that. So there was a sense of community, community morals. So people didn't close their, or lock their doors at night. In fact, I remember once, my brother and I went to see a, a double feature. And it was right at the main section of Market Street, which is our downtown area. And the theater was there. And my brother had a 57 Chevy convertible, cool car. And uh, he, the top was down. And he left his wallet on the dashboard with money in it. Clearly, anybody walking by could have seen it. We came out of the movie. Three hours later, the wallet was there. Never once did we lock a car because nobody stole them. We didn't have to worry about where we walked at night at any time because 
people chose to respect each other. Now, you always had in every community in the world, some never do wells. These people just choose not to fit in. They choose not to respect. And those are the people that were their truants and they'd get in trouble. And everyone in the community knew who they were. And you'd hear this notion of, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yes and no. You could have good parents, good in-laws, good teachers, and still someone defies it all. Uh, and so you have to take that in consideration. Don't always blame the parents for what a child does, especially teenagers and a little older. In any case, there was harmony. There was a sense of, of bliss. Now, today that's mocked and ridiculed. Today, even the term woman is mocked and ridiculed. Or brother, sister, mother, father. They don't want them. Who are they? A group of individuals who thus far believed in their new ideologies. That how you feel is your reality. You have no reality other than I want this now, immediately. Come impulsive, compulsive, and detached from any sense of social etiquette, manners, or communication. You don't have a conversation with people. You yell and scream and spit and curse and condemn. You want to cancel that person. Over what? A misstated pronoun? So we've gotten to where we're at the bottom end of a, a generational phenomena. And every generation challenges some aspects of the generation preceding them. But remember, you had the benefit of previous generations to give you the opportunity to do what you're doing today because they, they were ones dealing with life as it is. They, they understood cause and effect. They understood that you don't buy stuff you don't need, especially those who grew up during the Great Depression, where you had to pay attention if you wanted to have another meal to what you were spending, what you were buying, what you were doing, and how you were using it. My parents, many of your parents, came through that. So they saved. And as a result, I can remember in the 1960s, you go to a bank and you got a savings book and it showed you your savings, how much you were how much interest you were making, 5% interest. And so people had no debt. I, don't, I didn't know anyone who had debt. Now, these were not rich people. These were working class people. These were people, very few had ever gone to college. So these were people who worked at trades, uh, plumbers, electricians, clerks, uh, salespeople. But they all had something in common. You never looked down at someone because they were a waiter or waitress in a restaurant or tore your tickets as you went into a movie theater. In fact, I did that in high school. And it was embarrassing, but I'd do it, and I made a few bucks doing it. And uh, everybody respected someone who could come and fix something. We were a country that made stuff and fixed stuff. And everybody worked. And that's when Eisenhower started the great highway programs. And then we had our infrastructures. And uh, we built things. We built the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building. These were really unique at that time. Tallest buildings in the world at that time. And there you look at those old photographs, and you'll see those guys sitting out on a steel beam having lunch. I mean, just literally sitting way up in the air on a steel beam. 
and just relax. <laughs> just thinking about it kind of gives me goosebumps. And uh, but they, they, these are the people that were the bedrock of society. These were the adaptive, supportive energies, meaning you adapt to an environment in a good way, you fit in, you find your place, you contribute to it, and you do the best you can because you have supervisors and foremen who are looking at your work and saying, this has got to be the best, whether it was making a car. Remember the 40s and 50s? Remember the 50s cars? We have nothing compared to that today. All the cars today are functionally the same. They get you where you're going, and they cost a lot different. And we somehow think, well, that car is better than this car. BMW is better than a Mercedes. Who says? All right? They're both built at very high quality. But we used to build everything at high quality in the United States, whether it's vacuum cleaners or Schwinn bikes or rally bikes and uh, Ford. And then we had that wonderful, phenomenally creative time that from the 1945 to 1965, when we were really going forward. And then something happened. We had very little debt nationally. We had good gross domestic product. We had debt from World War II, yes. Uh, but as far as current debt, very little. And people were thriving at just enjoying life on the hedonic scale. Hedonic meaning hedonism. At the low end, at the beginning, it's the simple pleasures in life. Pleasure. The pleasure in your family. The pleasure of looking at a Norman Rockwell painting and saying, that could be my family. All right? The uh, little boy or girl playing with the dog and out in the yard. Simple life, simple pleasures, nothing that complicated. But there was a sense of decency, uh, holding hands, hugging, going to concerts, ball games, going fishing, the things we did together, going to drive-in movie. We enjoy that. Simple pleasures. But there was one group that wasn't satisfied with that. This was a wealthier group, the class divide. And we didn't mind that. We, we, weren't, we weren't saying, gee whiz, I feel bad about myself because I look at them and they have much more. No, we weren't self-doubting, self-loathing because we didn't have enough of something. We had an abundance of everything. And uh, it was just a wonderful time even though it's mocked today. It wasn't perfect. We haven't had anything since to match it. But then there was a group that took off. And these are people that historically would have run an institution. And that would have been for the benefit of the shareholders, yes, but also the whole community. So when you made decisions, you would ask, is this going to affect in a positive or negative way the community? Why? Because you might have had two, three, four, five generations working there. And when you worked at a place, you were expected to work there for the rest of your life and do your job, adapting and in a positive way. The adaptive support is you supported the common. You supported where you worked. You supported your community, your church. It was supportive. And then this group, few that they were, they decided, I don't want to run a company anymore for the people. And they disconnected. As a result, 
starting about 1970, but accelerating by 1975, they thought, what the heck? Why not offshore these jobs to India, Bangladesh, China, Haiti? And uh, because our value is in the brand. So if I can take an American brand, um, like a dishwasher or a bike or television, and if I can make them in Mexico at half the cost, then that means we're going to make double the profit. They didn't think, well, what about the people that have worked there? They didn't care about them. So it started a process slowly. I saw it, but it began to accelerate. And then what was once our industrial heartland, Milwaukee and uh, St. Louis, Camden, Compton, factories, no ghettos, no crime, became ghettoized because they didn't help the people who were working there. They just left them. All right, well, what, what are you supposed to do? Three generations of you have worked in a brick factory, and now there's no brick factory. It's been closed down because the bricks can be made in, in India and then shipped over in containers for half the price of what it costs because they're not paying union wages. They don't have an environmental uh, cleanup. It's just pure profit. So when other companies start seeing this, then the heads of those companies say, well, we have a 12% profit increase this year, very nice, and it's allowed a 2% increase in the value of your home, average 2 to 3%. So as our parents came out of World War II, they bought homes with a 2% interest and for about $8,000 to $12,000, depending upon where they lived, and or they paid low rent. The average working person represented over 70% of the people who lived in Manhattan. And Manhattan had a huge garment industry, and they also had a huge publishing industry downtown. We did a lot of stuff in the city, and now those are being outsourced out of the country. And as a result, where were these people supposed to work next? And so from 1970s, interest rates went up to 22%. Volcker, the chairman of the Fed, uh, had them up there at a high level to keep inflation down. But inflation was high, unemployment was high, and we started seeing the cost of stuff increase. But then the greed misers got in, the equity partners, the people. I'll tell you how that works. Let's just say that you run a, you run a company for the last family-based company for the last uh, 50 years, and you're the third generation coming in now. And someone comes up to you and says, look, you got a very profitable company and a very nice brand and uh, it's privately owned. But according to what we've seen, you're earning about, you personally, you're earning about about 500000 to a million dollars a year, right? which is a good income in the 1970s. It's worth about three times that now. We're going to see that you get at least $10 million, enough to last you the rest of your life without having to do anything. Oh, suddenly goes back to the family says they want to buy our stock. And so you think, what a deal. Get the money now. That amount of money? So greed took over. And people then made the deals. Then they took this private company that was profitable. And they continued taking all the profit, but for themselves. As, as 
management fees. And they only had to put a small percent down to end up buying this. The bridge capital came from one of the people on Wall Street, a bank that took some uh, stock out of the company also. If it was a public company, if it was private, they got equity. But how long does a company last? How long would you last if every week someone took a quart of your blood? Every week and put nothing back in? Well, it didn't take long before these companies that were once long-time companies and profitable were bankrupt. So then they took it into bankruptcy and they got rid of all their debt. And then they, as the owners, got to buy it right back out of bankruptcy and then maybe take it over to China and continue the brand, but again, making it cheaply elsewhere without any concern about how many people were working at virtually, you know, slave labor being exploited, the dresses, shirts, and ties. So as a result, we had more and more unemployment. But then the fabrics that are made into uh, dresses and shirts and suits, those are made in Bangladesh. But we had an international ladies' garment workers union. Well, now they had very little to do because almost everyone went to outsource because they could make more profit. Your job, your standard of living, your community was irrelevant to them because they didn't live with you. Because they'd already had enough money, they could live in a better location. The big divide was beginning because there was a time when the rich and poor and middle class all went to the same schools, public schools. Just to understand, it was in the mid-1960s, the mid-1970s, that the great divide began to happen. The seismic separation of a working class, middle class, that represented most workers and did all, all the stuff. They made this, this shirt. They made this television. They made this microphone. They made this desk. They built your house. Everything in your life, from your reading glasses, the desk you're working on, to the shoes, they made, yet they were never given respect. They were the other. Because the more money you made, the more you wanted to be around other people making a lot of money. The more money you want to make, the more money you thought, if only I had more, I would have an abundance of love and respect. People would defer to me. Look at them. They're driving an expensive car, living in an expensive house. But the average person didn't care about that. They cared about their own families. But that's where all this started. T today's problems uh, had an enormous amount of infusion at that time. And so why have a woman make $25 an hour at that time a living wage when we can have a woman in Bangladesh work for 14 to 24 cents an hour and have a very short work life? Because the garment was going to be made pretty much the same in America or another country, but the margin of profit, the amount of money people could get in their own bank account who ran the companies and their stockholders, and what do stockholders do? I want to buy a stock in the company that's likely to have the most profit, the big profit. I want the big dividends. So there was a kind of a collective psychosis of greed going on where people didn't seem to feel comfortable in their lifestyle and needs. They wanted more of everything. Okay, so that's where we went. Now, I give you that because 
all throughout the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we were gutting what was left of the industrial base of America. Everything was being exported. To where we made very little here. We serviced, but we didn't manufacture. And so whole communities just went to rot. No support. And they're still rotting today because there's been no support. So on top of that, the average person had to pay more for medicine because why not make drugs more expensive? Why not make a visit to the hospital even if nothing's wrong with you and they send you home saying you're okay? Let's charge them $5,000. Because the same people, the same group of people, the same mindset, the equity partners started to buy up medical practices, buy up hospitals, so they could charge anything they wanted. So a, a normal birth can cost $40,000, where in the 1970s, the same birth would cost you $2,000. And they controlled all the medicine. Then they controlled all the media. So you never get to hear a criticism of what they're doing. There were no articles in any of the major magazines that I can recall, like Forbes and Barron's and Wall Street Journal, really showing who are these economic parasites, the equity partners? No. No, they were lauded because of their wealth, and they could spend $100 million on a Picasso, or they ran, one of them was the president of Channel 13, PBS's local station board. What do you think happens when a person with that mindset gets in a position where everything is, how much am I going to get, get for this? What's in it for me? So we start to see a whole redefinition of what it means to be a community, a community of the very rich, the Davos, the World Economic Forum, the people control the world, or Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, which I think just yesterday said they had a hundred, somewhere around $127 billion in profit. That makes you a very powerful influencer. These are the real influencers. And so they then bought stock in all the other companies. Not just Pepsi, but Pepsi and Coke and 7-Up, all of them. They didn't just buy one pharmaceutical stock. They bought all of them. They bought stock in all the networks. It didn't matter whether it was conservative or liberal. It was irrelevant to them. And their name appeared nowhere. And they personally appeared nowhere. While they collected trillions of dollars in assets to manage. So, the people controlled the world and controlled our destiny were invisible. And if you mentioned there's some kind of hidden hand, a power behind what we're saying, nah, you're a conspiracy nut. No, there's not. Yeah, there is. Because when the price of oil goes up per barrel, they're behind it. When you're paying more interest, they're behind that. Who do you think controls the different uh, Federal Reserve banks? They do. Who owns the interest, the primary interest in controlling interest in Citibank and Wells Fargo and Bank of America and Chase? They do. So everywhere you look, thousands upon thousands of companies they own. As a result, they had the collective stock worth anywhere between 20 to $30 trillion dollars. Put them all together, six companies together, you've got over $50 trillion. That's a huge amount of influence. 
So they control geopolitical influence, they control economic influence, and if they don't want something made in America because it can be made cheaper and make more profit elsewhere, they'll do it. That's where we went. That's how we got there. Greed. And the average person's adaptive supportive. They're not a policymaker, opinion leader, or stylist. They just go about their lives. But now their lives are being turned upside down. And all of America has become, in the areas where there once was thriving communities, stability, joy, and employment, no debt. Now, it's all being ghettoized. And they know that. They take no responsibility. And yet we think our local politicians are going to turn, turn around, or our local people in the White House or Congress. They won't, because every one of those companies have lobbyists, and those lobbyists want certain bills, certain legislation, they get it passed. Because probably 90% of all the Senate members and the House members are influenced by lobbyists putting money into their campaigns. And then when was the last time any of these people did anything that represented your interest and mine? So that's what we're dealing with. But now let me give you some statistics. These are very important for us to understand. The current gross domestic product, the GDP, is $27 trillion. Now, if you looked at our debt just based upon uh, the U.S. federal debt, the national debt, and this is all debt, this is money we borrowed, is $33.7 trillion. So you could say, okay, that's not terrible. So the, uh, the percentage of gross domestic debt to gross domestic product is 130%. But that's where everyone stops. That's where all your economists stop. Don't stop there because that's not the U.S. total debt. The U.S. total debt is $102 trillion. And that breaks down to the national debt of 33.7, the state debt of 1.3. That means states, many are bankrupt. The local debt, 2.4 trillion. New York City, they just spend money like crazy. And what do we get for all this money that they're spending? We get terrible politics and outcomes. We get corruption. We get favoritism. We get no-bid contracts. And none of this helps the average person. All right? So local communities are paying higher taxes, and yet they don't get the benefit. At the state level, more taxes don't get the benefit. Why do you think most people now are leaving? 800 people a day are leaving New York State, and a lot of them in New York and the boroughs, because it's just too expensive. Even some of the wealthy people have relocated to Florida or Texas. Why? There's no personal income tax. Well, New York and, and Texas, uh, Florida, excuse me, in uh, New York and California, that tax is about 12% per year. That's in addition to the income tax. Now, income tax, you can get your accountant to get you around a lot of that. And very few wealthy people to pay all their taxes. But the average person has to pay that 12% tax. So why live in a state that you're overtaxed and overregulated? And you don't have the freedom. You have a lot of mandates. And so that's why people are moving. In fact, in the last year, it is estimated that $1 trillion in income production has left California and has left New York. Big corporations are relocating to uh, other places. Now, how much does the average person owe? It's about $74,600 a year. You heard me right. That's how much debt they owe. That cumulatively is $25 trillion. Do we have any way of paying it back? No. 
but then there's a whole industry. Just look at the total debt of the average person. It's so high and their equity is so low that they're living in perpetual debt and there's no way to get out of it. However, the people in power want you to have that 74,600 per debt and 25 trillion because now they profit from that. They come in and buy debt from banks and companies. They buy the debt for five, 10 cents on the dollar, then harass the hell out of you. And who, who allowed credit card companies to charge you 18% interest, which is way too high because they can borrow that money at 1%, 2% historically when the Fed was offering very low uh, debt interest. And now they charge you 30%. If you miss a payment, only make partial payment more. And then if you unfortunately have to borrow money through one of the real high interest rates, payday loans, 500 to 1,000%. People are going to go bankrupt. Why don't they change the legislation? Why don't they reduce all of the debt loans? They could. They choose not to. That's how much power they have. And who owns a lot of these debt companies? Yeah, the same companies. Student debt, $1.8 trillion. That's averaging $39,700 per person. But a doctor is walking out of there with three to $500,000 in debt alone. And then you wonder why many doctors charge a lot of money. Credit card debt, that's $7,400 per holder or $1.2 trillion. Now here's what they borrowed against Social Security, $26.3 trillion. Now there are 58 million retirees and we, not the government, the government never puts a penny into Social Security. It's not an entitlement. It's our forward savings. A certain amount comes out of our paycheck over the course of our lifetime working and goes into a trust. And that trust is supposed to then give that back to us for the rest of our life after we reach the age to collect Social Security. But the government's been taking money out to pay for its wars and other expenditures and putting an IOU back in. Well, that IOU is $26.3 trillion. And then we have unfunded liability, meaning we have enormous liability, but it's unfunded. But it's promised, like Medicare. So we, we have to pay those bills. The government does. So how much is that? $211 trillion. Yes, uh, is, is an unfunded liability. And $40 trillion, that's Medicare. And then how much debt is held by foreign countries where they buy our debt, our treasuries, 7.8 trillion. And how much of a trade deficit we, do we have? Meaning things we manufacture and sell to other countries versus what we have to buy from other countries. We're way behind on that. We used to be the leader in the world in trade surpluses, meaning we made a lot of profit making and delivering stuff to other countries. Today, our deficit is $1.1 trillion. And how about corporate debt? in T-bill T security, $16 trillion. So when you add all this up, you're $330 trillion, $330 trillion. According to the latest statistics as of this morning, the United States total debt accounted for 741.6% of the country's gross domestic product in 2023. The data reached an all-time high of 828.7% in March 2021 and record low a 303 in 1953. And that was because of World War II. So the notional value of outstanding over-the-counter uh, derivatives, which we should ban completely, derivatives should not exist. They're an economic time bomb, is $598 trillion. That was at the end of 
2021, then it jumped up to 632 trillion by 2022. There's no current figure in this year. Well, this is what I just said. Obama, on New Year's Eve, did a bail-in law similar to Cyprus, meaning that when you put your money into a bank, any of those banks they own, they also, if they go broke or dissolve, you don't see the big amount that could collapse the entire economic system in America. could just bring it right down overnight, the collapse of the outstanding derivatives. And that's $632 trillion. And uh, four banks, just four of the biggest banks in America, hold 88.6% of all bank derivatives, while the largest 25 banks account for 100% of it. You may not know what a derivative is. You may never have heard of it. But uh, derivatives and swap holdings could just, one bank goes down. One big bank, uh, Bank of America and Citibank, the entire banking system could collapse because you cannot take any money out of the bank when it goes. You don't have a deposit then. You're a shareholder. Ah, you didn't know that. That's in the law that they wrote, the banking industry wrote. And so how does the average bank make money today? By printing money they don't have. There's no responsible banking out there. As a result, they want to make money off money. And so when you see people who are worth billions of dollars, did they build something to do that? Did they build an industry? Did they build a did they build something that employed a hundred thousand people working every day? No. No, they bet. And derivatives are bets, credit diesel swaps. Morgan uh, Morgan JP Morgan has got uh, thirty six trillion, Goldman Sachs twenty six trillion, Citibank thirty two trillion, Bank of America sixteen trillion. So understand something. When one bank goes, they're all going to go. Oh, but Gary, that's not a problem because the uh, the, the government has a, a system where they'll bail you out to the tune of, uh, of about $250,000. Well, that's unfortunate, not going to be the case because they could not bail out one bank's customers, let alone all of them. All right? The whole system is bankrupt. And right now, the U.S. median income as of today is $36,000. How bad is it? Here's the story no one will tell you. 11.4% of Americans, that's 37.2 million, live below the poverty line. 11.5 million children live in dire poverty. How many is 11.5 million? If you put a child living in dire poverty, abject poverty, in every apartment, in every building in New York and the five boroughs, you'd have about 3 million children left still without an apartment. And yet not a word anywhere, not a piece of legislation anywhere, nothing being done anywhere to help 11.5 million children in the United States. So, and then we say, but we're thriving. We only have a 3.9% unemployment rate. That's a lie. Look at John Williams' shadow statistics. They're accurate. What is the actual unemployment in America? 24.7%. Why aren't they just honest about it? Because then if you say we got 24.7%, you're talking about almost one-fourth of the American population are unemployed. But then how many are employed or employed in the summer, in seasonal jobs, or around holidays, seasonal jobs, and then they're unemployed? And that would mean that we do not have a thriving economy. We have an enormously uh, imbalanced economy with a huge amount of unemployed or underemployed or poor people and 
about somewhere in the neighborhood of around 35 million very wealthy people. And also, they lie about the, um, the, the actual amount that we're spending on goods. You've seen it. It's not 8%. In some items, like food, it could be as much as 25 30%. So, don't trust the inflation numbers. Now, the Federal Reserve ceased publishing M3, its, broadcast, its broadest money supply measure, in March 2006. So we're not getting the truth about how much money is being printed. But remember this, this is a simple economic principle. The more money they print in order to pay for bills from which they have no, they have nothing to back it up at all. They don't have gold or anything to back it up. We have gold, but it's not used as a standard anymore. And that means that they're just printing as much as they want for every dollar they print that we don't have anything to support it. Well, that reduces the value of the dollar you have. So the dollar used to buy a lot more. Now it buys very little. And that's why you can take, you go into, what do they call it? Whole Foods paycheck. To go into Whole Foods, you start paying for everything. You get out and you got two bags of food and you spend $120, whatever. I mean, the dollar isn't what it used to be. We have 45 million Americans having to get food from food stamps. How many people are living in really serious poverty in the United States who are never spoken about, never shown? 36 million. 36 million. Wow. That's more than live in New York State or live in Texas. And nearly as many that live in California. How many Americans, after all we were told, passed the Affordable Care Act, it's going to help everyone? Well, okay, that was a fraud. So what are we left with today? How many people, if they get injured or sick or need medical care, could go broke? 27 million have no insurance. Well, it's simple. Why don't we just have universal health care where we get rid of all of the middle people? We get rid of the insurance industry. We don't need them. And we get rid of medical malpractice, which is just exploited constantly. So doctors over-treat, over-diagnose in case there's a a lawsuit, they can say, well, we gave them all these tests, right? No. Have a universal medical insurance, like universal car insurance, where a percentage of the profit they make goes into a general fund, and then watch how few people then, knowing they're not going to be able to live the rest of their life off of scamming someone, and then take out, out all the fraud. There's over $200 million a year in fraud in medicine. Take out the greed control the prices of what something costs for manufacturing and what it should be sold at, at 300% profit. And that's a lot of profit. But some are selling it at 3,000, 10,000% increase between what it costs to make a product, a drug, and what you buy it at. So take out the greed. And then have Universal, which would cost about $1.7 trillion. I wrote an article on, on GaryNall.com. It shows you exactly how we could have universal health care for everyone. So no matter what illness you have, you wouldn't go broke. This would be like the 1950s and 40s again. And medical, medical bankruptcy was the first or second bankruptcy for the last 30 years. So who's causing all this? Well, how about 705 billionaires, all right? How about 23.2 million millionaires just in the United States? And 20% of them inherited their wealth. 
So they have no idea. They lived in a bubble, an entitlement bubble. They have no idea who you are if you're a working class person. But what is it they all share in common? Well, they share in common that they can buy stuff you can't. They can live with debt you can't. They can they can cause the cost of everything to go up because of what they spend on real estate, where it's not worth what they're spending. But it forces all the other landlords to say, hey, let's make more money. And we see this every day with one billionaire outdoing another billionaire. Jeff Bezos just bought his, I think, third home altogether in the billionaire's bunker area of West Palm Beach, somewhere in the 60s and 70 million dollars per house. And this is just a small amount of the houses. Well, what's this carbon footprint? What does that do to the value of other homes? It causes this carbon footprint to go through the ceiling. But is he criticized for this? No. Does he share any of his billions with his workers so they could have one person stay at home and handle the family? No. And that's true of all these billionaires. So we praise the billionaires. We look at their yachts and their planes, and their lifestyle, and their wives' plastic surgery, and their, you know, their impotency. It's just pathetic. So understand something. If you have 23.2 millionaires, that means they have a million dollars minus their real estate, or not including the real estate. What's not told? How much debt do they have? And that's figure no one knows. Because people like to present, well, I have this amount of income. What's your debt? What do you owe against that? I just so happened to have, a, not a personal friend, but someone that works out, and we live in the same building for 20 years, we work out at 5 o'clock in the morning, and he's a money manager. He doesn't invest people's money. He suggests what they should do. And he told me two years, three years ago, just as COVID was starting, he said, I'm seeing a phenomenon I've never seen in my career. He's been in about 30 years. I said, what's that? He's the people who would normally make two million, three, four, five million dollars a year are still making that, but they're spending the same amount. As a result, they don't have cash flow. So they're charging their customers more, whether a doctor, or dentist, or lawyer, and they're stressed to the max. But what they bought isn't worth much. Guy gives me a Rolex watch. He said he spent $56,000 on it for his wife in Las Vegas. So I went to sell it for him to see what it would value. $12,000. I said, I can only get $12,000, but I spent $56,000. I had to tell him, then you didn't buy something that will help you make more money. So we've just had massive an orgy of consumption, whether it's a middle class or poor person's consumption or wealthy person's consumption. We've overspent. We've overbought. Too much stuff. Rich stuff, poor stuff, mediocre stuff. We're a nation that just consumes nonstop. We're addicted to consumption. So how reasonable is it if a person cannot manage their wealth and whatever they make, they have to make more because nobody ever wants to say no. From the kids they raised who were raised in these bubbles, my God, imagine how they look at life when there was no time for them personally with their parents, but they had nannies, and they had coaches, and they had... These are the kids that end up being extremely resentful when they're old enough to realize that you can't buy love. 
So that's just to give you some ideas. And yet the richest generation is my generation, the baby boomers. And thank goodness for some of that because our parents helped us. And uh, so we have gross inequity in income distribution in the range. And when you have people living on $15,000, yeah, how many people in the United States are living on $15,000 a year? 10.21%. Well, how many people are living on fifteen dollars to $24,000 a year? 8.9%. How many people are living on 25000 to 35000 8.7%. And how many are living on thirty-five dollars to $49,000? 12%. And how many are living on fifty dollars to $75,000? 17%. Wow. And so there's where your income is, and there's where your poverty is. And so just understand something. Look at all the big chains that once were good. Toys R Us, Bain Capiton, Kohlberg, the Kravitz Roberts, they bought them out and they all went bankrupt. In fact, since 2012, just 2012, 10 of the largest 14 retail chains went bankrupt due to private equity ownership. In recent years, equity firms have been focusing on the food industry. Borden, APAMP, Pathmark, Acosta, Fresh and Easy, all in graveyards today because of financial reengineering out of existence by buyouts. J. Crew, bankruptcy, leveraged buyout with $3 billion to G, T, TPG Capital in 2011. Neiman Marcus, taken off the market in 2005 when leveraged by TPG Capital and Warburg Pincus for $5.1 billion and then sold for $6 billion to Ares Management. Barney's in November. Uh, Fairway Grocery Store, due to mismanagement of a series of buyouts, notably uh, Sterling Investment Partners, Shopco, uh, Wisconsin Chain Stores, Payless Shoes, Sports Authority, um, Models, Art Van Furniture, Blue Stem Brands, Pier One, Papyrus, Lucky's, Earth Fair, Food First Global Restaurants, Stage Stores, like uh, Beals, um, Pebbles, uh, so this is what we're dealing with, if you can appreciate this. We're dealing with a country that is virtually bankrupt. It will never be able to pay the debt, not even the interest on the debt now, both at the federal level, state level, corporate level, and personal level. And yet none of this is ever discussed. Because if we started to open that door and saw how corrupt everything, the lies we've been told, uh, and mind you, the, the total debt is calculated as a sum of liabilities for non-financial businesses and federal government, state and local governments, and household and nonprofit organizations, and financial businesses, less mutual fund shares. So we are we're finished at the economic level, except no one's told the person that you have money, but the money is losing its power. What's coming at us is a tsunami. Because while we were spending and outsourcing businesses and causing tens of millions of Americans to lose their jobs without any care and causing communities that once were thriving, working-class communities, now are ghettos, and then comes the crime behind it. Want to get rid of crime? Well, several things go into it, but one is a good working employment where you're making a living wage and you've got a steady job and one person in a two-parent two home, 
can take care of the kids and help guide them through all of the problems of life so they end up at this problem. So when a family is working as it was at one time and had a roof over its head and security, not living with stressors, they're going to do a lot better at everything. But we don't want that because we don't care. The people in charge don't care. The major corporations don't care. The media absolutely can't stand you. Because when was the last time someone who became well-known and famous in America stayed in the neighborhood, continued to have the same friends, went to the same synagogue, church or, church or mosque, went out and socialized together, went on trips together? No. They all want to go to where the elites are. They want to be in that golden circle of privilege, entitlement, deferment, like Davos, the World Economic Forum, the Business Roundtable, the Atlantic Council, the Council of Rome, all right, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, where the elites go, where just the idea that you're powerful, but you could be a functional idiot, doesn't matter, you're in the group. And so they force everything up on their end, but they have income, at least on an ongoing basis. Some will fail, but they more often not fail up. The average person, forgotten. It's like the average American is a shadow. It exists behind the wealthy. And they're selfish. And they're many sociopaths. And their children are the ones who are out there causing so much of the cancellation in the world culture. They have no values. They have no grounding in morals and ethics and manners and civil conversation and debate and dialogue. They're functionally illiterate on history, civics, and, uh, and world affairs. But they're really good on screaming and spitting. So what do we do? Well, guess what's coming? What's here now and will manifest over the next 24 months? BRICS. In January, joining Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and South Africa's a basket case, is Saudi Arabia. United Arab Emirates, Mexico, Argentina, which is a basket case. And uh, and then behind that are 40 other countries wanting to get in. So when you take their gross domestic product against their debt, they just hands down beat European unions, uh, France, Italy, Germany, Great Britain, Canada, and the United States. Right now, they have a higher gross domestic uh, manufacturing base. So we better be attentive to the fact that another group of people out there, primarily from the South, are not the South of the United States, the South of the world, have more people, 4 billion people that they're servicing, and they're actually building corporations, factories, malls in their countries. They're helping them reduce debt, and we're doing just the opposite. So watch their currencies, mixed currencies, and watch ours, the value of our dollar go down. When the value of the dollar goes down 10, 20, 30%, there's your real estate collapse. There's your financial collapse. There's your bank collapse. And we are not prepared for any of this. I'm going to do a part two of what's the good news in this thunderstorm. And there is good news. But that's a whole hour to itself. I'll do that on an upcoming progressive commentary. I'm just showing the problem today and who's responsible for it, but in perspective. Thank you all for taking the time to watch this. 
If you believe that there's information here that is of value, share it with other people. Have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've 